Hi everyone. Welcome to the May episode of the Network 5 Emergency Journal Club podcast. The podcast designed to bring exciting emergency research to you. This month we're talking about my personal favorite topic, pediatrics. Joining us, we have dual pediatrics and emergency or PEM registrar, Johan de Alwis, who's from the Sydney Children's Hospital Network, who will be talking about fever in infants. We've also got PEM registrar, Omar Fernando, who will be talking about testicular torsion and emergency registrar, Min Park, who will be talking about the use of inhalers in kids with acute asthma. We're also lucky to be joined by Blacktown Pediatric Emergency Staff Specialist, Dr. Serbi Ricky and Dr. Kerf Tan, who's a staff specialist at Auburn and Westmead Children's Hospitals. Before we go any further, let's go around the room and introduce everyone. Hi everyone, my name's Pramod. I'm back again for another episode. I'm an ED consultant working out at Nepean. Hi, I'm Johan. I'm a PEM trainee currently at Sydney Children's Hospital Network. Hi, I'm Min. I'm one of the ED registrars at Westmead Hospital. Hi, I'm Serbi. I'm the... PEM staff specialist at Blacktown uh, Emergency and VMOing at Campbelltown Emergency. Hi, I'm Caroline. Hi guys, it's Samoda. Hey, it's Kit, just here for my corner. Hi, it's Amal, I'm one of the uh, PEM trainees, um, currently at Westmead doing my AD time. And hi, it's Kerf, I'm one of the emergency staff specialists at Auburn, half time there and half time at the Children's Hospital Westmead with pediatric interests. And I'm Shreyas and I'm very excited to be hosting my first episode. So to kick things off with our first paper, we've got Johan, who is going to be talking about a paper called A Clinical Prediction Rule to Identify Febrile Infants 60 Days and Younger at Low Risk for Serious Bacterial Infections by Kupperman et al. and the PECAN Network, um, and it's published in JAMA Pediatrics in April 2019. Johan, take it away. Uh, thanks, Ress. So, well, initially, after I got over my shock that someone actually wanted me to present a paper, I got to thinking what screams paediatrics more than fever? And one of the scariest things in the little humans is fever in the tiny humans. So I uh, decided to look at one of the main prediction tools which was used, you know, the Picard rules, and the prediction rule that went into that and the studies that went into that. So this one was done by Nate Cooperman et al. as part of the Febrile Infant Working Group of the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network, also known fondly as PECAN to those of us who do PEDS. So this is a multi-centered trial uh, across most of North America, done in sort of the 2011 to 2013 period, uh, validated through to 2016, and finally published in 2019. I guess as we know, that, you know the importance of this, um, in the young febrile infants, uh, serious bacterial infections, which include UTIs, bacteremias, meningitis, lead to quite dangerous complications. And these tiny humans are the most at risk, mainly because of their yet-to-be-developed immune systems, as well as underdeveloped blood-brain barrier, which can therefore lead to much complications. 
There have been multiple sort of clinical tools and clinical prediction rules which have been used in the past. The Americans particularly, you know, um, each state likes to have their own. You've got the Boston criteria, the Rochester, the Philadelphias, uh, and quite recently something called a step-by-step. In Australia, we don't have a clinical rule per se, but we do. each of the states does have their own guidelines. Me personally, I'm fond of the NHS's traffic light system in dealing with fevers in children. Uh, however, this is possibly one of the most succinct ones uh, that I've come across. And since this is by the Pecan Group, it is something which I guess is quite accurate. So the study itself was a prospective observational study, which was done, as I said, between March 2011 and 2013. They used 26 different emergency departments and they used samples from previously healthy febrile infants who were 60 days or younger who were evaluated for SBIs, which are serious bacterial infections. Now, usually what happens is that in addition to certain markers, uh, they used patient demographics, fever heights, duration, clinical uh, appearance, uh, white cell count, absolute neutrophil count, serum procalcitonin and urinalysis to make decisions. So this rule actually took into account just three factors, which were a normal urinalysis, an absolute neutrophil count, and serum procalcitonin. The numbers per se aren't that important given that different labs and different uh, systems have completely different cutoffs. So how this study was done was they basically derived the prediction rule on random samples. They had about basically 900 plus in both the derivation group and the validation group. And the interesting thing that both these groups were actually created concurrently. So it wasn't that a derivation group was created uh, and then further down the line, further down the study, a validation group was created. So you had infants who were picked at the very start of the study for the validation group and infants who were picked right at the end for the derivation group. So serious bacterial infections were present in about 170 of the 1,821 infants, which is about 9.3%. And the prediction rule identified that infants at low risk of SBI using those three criteria, which is a negative urinalysis result, an ANC of 4,090, and a procalcitonin of 1.71. The rule sensitivity was found to be about 97.7, specificity uh, about 60, Uh, with a negative predictive value of 99.6 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.04. There was one infant with bacteremia and two infants with a UTI who were misclassified, which is actually quite a large number uh, when you think in terms of pediatrics and what mortality and morbidity mean. And they also uh, tended to underestimate concurrent infections since the SBIs typically only describe the three, which is UTI, bacteremia, and meningitis, and don't actually take into account other infections, which can also be life-threatening. But they found that in conclusion, by deriving and validating an accurate prediction tool, which is still used today to identify the febrile infants 60 days and younger, they had the potential to decrease unnecessary lumbar punctures, antibiotic administration and hospitalizations. Compared to some of the other clinical tools which are out there, uh, this one actually didn't need CSF and it completely 
removed clinical gestalt or clinical acumen from the rule itself, which made it quite objective. Thank you so much, Johan. Now, I'm going to start by asking just a really basic question. Um, One brought to me by Harry, who's one of our SRMOs who um, hasn't had the chance to practice pediatrics yet. And I I thought it was a really good point to consider. Given that most of pediatrics is very clinical and we don't tend to rush to do invasive investigations, why is it that in the febrile infant we can't just use clinical gestalt or, you know, the clinical assessment of the appearance of the child to decide whether they're well or not, whether they've got meningitis or not, um, and what the difference is? Well, Shres, um, think about what does a neonate or a less than 60-day-old do? Uh, Eat, poo, and sleep. (laughs) Excellent. For the most part, you'll get a coo, a gurgle out of them. So they're perhaps not the best historians. Um, So they can't really give you an accurate history. Parents, while they can give you some information, uh, as a parent myself, I can tell you there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of uh, being terrified, which goes into that. So sometimes the information you get isn't quite what you need to make a clinical diagnosis. And also, we are dealing with very, very tiny human beings who are almost an entirely different species. Uh, their physiology is different, their anatomy is slightly different. Um, so sometimes it's very easy to miss things which you wouldn't miss in an adult who can tell you, look, my head hurts, I've been vomiting for days, or you know, I've got a backache, etc., etc. I don't feel like eating. A neonate doesn't tell you that information. All they're going to do is go, well, sorry, that was a really poor impression of a neonate. But yeah, so apart from crying, which even the well neonate does, there's not much you can get out of them. So therefore, having certain objective um, tools which can lead you towards deciding which of these infants is at risk is very useful. This is not you know, discounting a clinical examination. There's nothing like a good clinical examination in every facet of pediatrics. Because in peds, we don't instantly run to do pan scans on every patient and do blood tests up and down the wazoo. It's all based on clinical acumen, clinical gestalt, and the information the the patient and the parent are giving us. But at the same time, particularly in the most vulnerable subset, it is difficult to get these. And we don't want to miss, like I said, and. You know, you'd think that one bacteremia missed in, you know, a massive case study doesn't matter, but it does matter to both the parents as well as to the clinicians who see this child. So um, for us to miss a serious bacterial infection in a tiny human is a very, very uh, devastating thing. So for that uh, reason, um, we tend to use certain clinical rules. And We tend to go a bit overboard sometimes with neonates in terms of sort of how far we investigate, how far we treat them, but that's all to make sure that we don't miss the one who's really, really sick. Thanks, Johan. That was a beautiful explanation. And um, I think it's really important for our audience to understand that the concern that we're addressing in this paper is occult serious bacterial infection. So this paper, if if mum has brought a flat, lethargic, mottled baby, but their obs somehow apparent happen to be you know, within normal flags, that is not the baby that we're applying this paper to. We're, this is 
by definition, the child that looks well or the infant that looks well, because the research has just shown that we, there's really no way to tease out which child is actually well and which child is not. We'll open it up to the floor. Did anyone have any particular thoughts about the methodology of this paper? I, th- I th- thought it was broadly quite a well-conducted study. Yeah, hi, it's Kurf here. So um, the PCAR network is obviously one of the gold standards for pediatric research. So methodology, I think, would be quite hard to fault in this one. Uh, if anything, I'm honestly a little bit um, taken aback by the amount of statistics and the amount of um, computing they needed to actually derive that and actually validate that. And really, I don't really think I can fault anything on that. Yeah, I, I wish I can do a study like that. Yeah, it's, it's kind of incredible the, the resources that the, the PCAR network has access to. Um, I think the study was as well done as it possibly could have. There, there was possibly some inherent limitations in terms of being a convenience sample. You know, it, being an initial study, there were relatively low numbers of patients with SBI and with in, invasive bacterial infection or IBI, which is essentially bacteremia or meningitis. Um, but yeah, it was overall a really excellent study. Um, and notably, at least in these initial statistics, um, performed probably better than, than any of the other um, previous prediction rules that Johan has mentioned. I'm interested in, in your opinions, uh, Serbian curve. How do you apply the, the, these papers tend to exclude the slightly more complicated infants? So the premies, the um, the infants who have recently been on antibiotic treatment, um, the infants who happen to you know have a prior medical condition, or even for that matter, in this the case of this paper, they even excluded patients who have soft tissue infections. So, what are you going to do with the sixty-one year, sixty-one day old baby that maybe is slightly premature, or you know the the patients that fall slightly outside the margins of the defined criteria for this sort of a paper? I think in those cases, you definitely do have to use some level of clinical acumen is what I would say. The study itself also clearly stated that in infants under 28 days, you saw the the largest amount of serious bacterial infections, which then suggests that that in itself is a a high-risk category. So when you add to that things like significant comorbidities, being a preterm baby, having had antibiotics, I think is the, re- the reason they excluded that is because you've got a partially treated infection. Um, all of those things, I think, are additional risk factors. So I think in that case, you do have to use clinical acumen. And in those cases, you probably would investigate more than under investigate. So I think the tool that they're trying to use is for the general, general population that presents with fevers without those high risk factors. And in saying that, keeping in mind that under 28 days is a high risk factor. It's challenging. I think even as expert clinician in the field of pediatric emergency medicine, I think I, I struggle sometimes to actually make certain decisions for children's this age group as well. The more risk factors, obviously, the more cautious you're going to be. And unfortunately, that entails more procedures and investigations to, to safety net um, the patient's condition. Um, I think the other thing to think about as well is don't forget there's actually unfortunately quite a lot of medicine that we do that's not evidence-based. That's because it's really hard to do studies for certain things. In this scenario, I think um, like you can see this study, we talk about zero to 60 days and then I think the step-by-step was actually talking about zero to 90 days and then evidence all basically comes to together but then you realise actually we can only apply certain parts of each, each study together. So there's a bit of finessing and that's how um, I think what I can bring in is at the Children's Hospital Westmead we do have a febrile infant zero to three month um, guideline 
Um, it's a bit of joint uh, guideline with obviously the general pediatricians there, infectious disease and ED as well. And we've sort of put, I think that was actually based on the step-by-step -step study based back in uh, 2014 then with the validation in 2016. And um, I myself actually had an email trail with Professor Cooperman actually while we were updating the guideline. Because interestingly, what we found there was our PCT essay was completely different from the one they're using. And actually, our, we, we were realizing that um, I think from uh, this study itself, you actually save probably about 30 to 30%-ish 30 of LPs in, in the, uh, the target population that we're looking at was the one-month to three-month-old infants. And then I think across um, the other studies, um, other um, sort of guidelines or scores with the step-by-step, -step, you're looking at potentially about 40%-ish reduction as well. We were only seeing less than 20%. Reduction. That's where we realized our sensitive, our essay was a bit too sensitive for this, basically. So to sum it up, difficult part of our work is to use our the art of medicine. I put it that way, trying to synthesize all the evidence together, and then actually being able to come up with tools like this is amazing to actually try to guide us objectively what to do next. I think you raised some interesting points there, Kurf. I remember seeing your face when you found out that the PCT assay was different. Uh, I, I, I think I was a registrar at Auburn and then it's just like, I just remember how it's, it's painful and really complicated implementing these international protocols locally. Just for my own mind, and I'd be interested in sort of input from all the pediatrically inclined physicians here, your analysis versus microscopy culture and sensitivity in this age group, given bladder transit time being so small, also short, urine and the bacteria that is in this urine causing cystitis doesn't have the time to generate nitrites, et cetera, et cetera. So just applying this practically, say if you had an infant that you were working up who you know, was negative on all these counts, or for example, infants who have bronch who also have a reasonable incidence of a co-committant urinary tract infection, do you safety net by saying someone, do you send a microscopy off for all of these samples? Um, just uh, as a clinical practice tip, I think. Certainly anything that's an in-out catheter sample should be sent. And I would say m most likely in a child under, under sort of 60 days, you'd probably send it off to make sure that you weren't missing something. In saying that, I don't think it necessarily, I mean, you would always safety net for these children, even if your urine was normal, if they were febrile and unwell looking or your bloods came back and they were reasonably normal, whether you would admit for observation or bring back to an acute review clinic, you would always have a safety net to make sure that you didn't miss out on a, a clinically significant infection. Clinically, I never use a urinalysis to exclude a UTI. I think even for the classic adult patients, the sensitivity is probably not high enough anyway, probably in the high 80s to low 90s at best. What I do is, uh, like what Serbi said, really, we, we're going to send off most urines that we do um, that's quite procedure intensive, meaning if you're going to do a super big tap, you're going to do an in and out catheter, definitely going to send it off because you're, gonna, you're definitely not going to put it in the bin. And then the ones that challenging uh, what about those with the clean catcher say you're doing a cannula then the baby starts weeing in front of you and catch it the risk obviously is that, that that's going to be contaminated as well so I think looking at the data at the kids hospital Westmead we actually have maybe up to a bit, about 80% of our clean catchers are actually contaminated so it's very very hard to interpret all that data how, how you're going to actually um, know what to do sometimes you rely on the urine so much uh, the result you're looking waiting for the microscopy and then when it comes back it's contaminated and then you, you, you frown a little bit because now you've got to do it again yeah. Sometimes, yeah, it's, uh, it, because that was one of the things that I learned when I was a when I was training at the children's hospital was the frequency with which microscopies are sent and how how much you can rely on just your analysis in this age group. I tend to get people to err on the side of caution, and in in kids under three months, when we know that we're not going to get a great sample and we've got a, a child with high fever, 
that we really want to exclude a UTI on. We really should be sticking to gold standards of urine collection. It was interesting in this paper, the two serious bacterial infections that got missed were actually UTIs that were negative on urinalysis and subsequently positive on the uh, microscopy, whether it was bacteria urea or whether it was an actual infection. I was listening to some discussion in regards to this paper, though, and there was an interesting point that a contaminated sample makes it more likely for the urinalysis to be positive, whereas if the urinalysis was negative, perhaps in a certain way, that remains reassuring regardless of how the urine was catched. Thoughts? I think that's a reasonable thought if you're talking specifically about contaminated urines. But in terms of the pathophysiology of cystitis, from my understanding at least, I didn't think that bladder transit time was long enough to allow for nitrite formation consistently enough. That was my understanding. Yeah, so I agree with that. So I think that's why usually we quite commonly see, as always, the the leukocytes maybe, um, because bacteria doesn't have enough time to actually transform or have that nitrite reaction, but there's actually the ongoing inflammation already in the bladder anyway, so that's why you can see the white cells. And don't forget, there's actually a list of bugs that doesn't actually cause a nitrite reaction as well, enterococcus being one of them. We probably have time for one more question, and I thought just as a simple practice point, how are you actually applying this to, or or applying this sort of a rule to a slightly premature patient that otherwise looks very well, doesn't have any other risk factors? So let's just say they're 36 weeks. Um, Are you doing it by using 40 weeks as the term cutoff? Are you using it by uh, using 37 weeks as a term cutoff? How do you adjust the age um, and decide how old they actually are? So it's a very good question. If you ask different people, there'll be differing opinions. And the problem is that it's, like you say, 37 versus 40, that's three weeks, that's a big deal, right? Your neonate is what, at best four weeks old, right? Currently, our practice and our guideline is um, a correction of from 37 weeks onwards, uh, which all makes sense because really your 37 weeks is where, where they are term, as opposed to where they are full term. And then there'll be some people that feel quite strongly about correcting it to 40 weeks. Um, especially from, I, th- I guess, the other aspects of pediatrics, like your growth and so on, um, and development, probably most people correct to 40 weeks. I think currently for fever, specifically in the infants, we do 37 weeks at the Children's Hospital Westmead. I guess the other thing that is a challenge in pediatrics is explaining, synthesizing complex literature, which has a great deal of uncertainty, to a very anxious set of parents. So sure, when, this, when, the, when you're sort of going through this and you're leading towards more and more investigations, you know, that's one way of this, this rule being used. But you know, the other the whole point of this is to minimise invasive investigations. How do you translate this literature to, I don't want to say convince, but reassure parents that their children or their child doesn't have a serious infection that requires further investigation or admission to hospital and that they're safe for discharge home based off this rule. And just to supplement that, um, on the on the flip side, because I found this challenging when I was at the kids, how do you convince a, a set of parents that their child who is feeding and gurgling and very happy looking that they need a lumbar puncture? I'm really glad you chimed in there, Shreyas, because I was going to say the former scenario is far less common. Most parents would love for you to do less investigations on their child, especially when they're a well-looking child. So in my opinion, that tends to be a lot less common and and most of these parents are pretty stressed, so they've come in seeking your opinion about what to do. And if you mention a lumbar puncture, which I usually do pretty early on, you'll you'll see the fear on, on their face. So usually you don't have to worry too much about having to convince them to not have one. 
But yes, frequently the problem is when you think that the child looks really well and you think, oh, I'm probably going to get away with not having to do a lumbar puncture and then you do these tests and you end up with a really high white cell count and a, and a high PCT and a high CRP and you're like, oh, I'm going to have to go back and have this conversation now. So my general practice is to, to tell them your child's come in with a fever. We know that kids under a certain age don't really have as strong an immune response. They might not even show you signs of a fever or being unwell until it's quite late. And therefore, there's a bunch of different conditions that we need to exclude. We're going to do this, this, this and this. Part of that means maybe having to do a lumbar puncture. At that point, I explain what the lumbar puncture is and say, I'm not going to jump to doing that. However, if there was things that are concerning already on the history, i mention that straight out but if we think that we have to wait for some of the other investigations to come back I'd probably preface it by saying we'll wait and see what those show but if they are um, pointing towards a a more serious infection then we'd have to consider a a lumbar puncture and I think raising it early always serves you well because it gives the parent time to think about the procedure and if they have any questions and when you come back later they can ask you those questions and you can go a bit more into depth. That was a great paper, Johan. I just wanted to raise two things with the paper. One is the PCAR network used their own data for the validation as well as the derivation, which while within the same population will work, when you externalize it, it loses some of the external validity. And I know there was a paper done in in Spain where they used their own data set and found the pecan actually, the sensitivity and specificity dropped. I think the sensitivity went to the 80s and the specificity was in the 50s. While the population is different, it is something to think about where you work, what your population is before you go about implementing this. And the second thing is the role of PCT. Now, we work in Westmead, Westmead Kids, Sydney Kids, PCT is available. But if you go out rural, PCT is not really available. So it is, there's a bit of a shortfall in the paper with the reliance on PCT. I just wanted to raise those issues. Oh yeah, those those are really useful points. And I was very glad that you mentioned that paper because I was about to bring that up next. Um, Johan, you had some thoughts? So first of all, America is always the center of the universe. which is why their data never translates to any other country. Um, at the same time, you know, the reason they use PCT rather than CRPs, white cell counts, is because PCT has been shown to be the most accurate, most sensitive for detecting bacterial infection. The actual main grouse I had with this paper was that they neglected to look at viral infections. And when we're talking tiny humans, viral infections can wreak havoc. HSV encephalitis is probably one of the most horrible things you will ever see in a neonate. So the fact that this paper didn't really address that was a bit of a shortfall. To answer your question, yes, not every place has PCT. Every place should, unfortunately it doesn't. But again, with the little ones, it's always best to err on the side of caution. If you can't apply a rule, don't apply it. Do more rather than less. No paediatrician is ever going to say, no, I'm not going to watch this child for the next 48 hours. This isn't geriatrics. We don't refuse admissions. If we're worried about a child, we watch them, we wait. We may not rush to a lumbar puncture if clinically we feel that it isn't necessary. But at the same time, uh, there's a lot to be said for you know the paediatric approach of let's just observe Let's see where this goes. And it's a very common thing that 
centres which don't have the facilities that uh, paediatric hospitals have, that they will either admit a patient, bring back a patient to, you know, their ambulatory clinic um, by whatever acronym they go by uh, the next day so that they can be reviewed. And in paediatrics, we're always a bit paranoid. So our safety nettings tends to be quite extreme. So I don't like to say that I scare the parents, but I do put the fear of God in them. And as a parent myself, I can, I guess, develop a relationship with them and tell them how terrifying it would be if something were to happen to their child, which means that they will bring their child back at the drop of a hat, which may be something that most emergency physicians would kind of scowl at and go, that's not the right way to do it. But at the same time, it's all about making sure that the children are safe. So, yeah, so it's all about, you know, those safety nets. Do we admit the patient for observation? Do we go ahead with the lumbar puncture anyway? Because, look, they are a very at-risk group. While there are complications of the lumbar puncture, it's actually a lot more common investigation in neonates than it is in any other uh, patient population. Um, And complication rates are fairly low. Or do we, you know, if they're really well, do we bring them back for a review tomorrow? Um, So there are various um, safety features we do have in place in the peripheral hospitals, and I do work in peripheral hospitals as well. Um, It's just about erring on the side of caution. That's beautifully summarised, Johan. Um, Now, just before we wrap up, I'm just going to throw some numbers at you in in relation to some of the points that were just addressed. So um, there was uh, some recent papers looking at uh, sensitivity and specificity of PCT. Um, This is on the normal assay, not on the Westmead Children's Hospital assay. I I remember doing a lot of lumbar punctures when I was there. and for a cutoff of 0.5, the sensitivity and specificity were both in the mid 80s, um, which for reference comparison, the sensitivity of a neutral count was about 17%. Um, and when you use the higher cutoff of two, the sensitivity obviously dropped, but the specificity moved well into the 90s. The validation study that was done in Spain showed a sensitivity of about 90% um, and specificity of about 55%. So certainly quite a decrease, particularly in uh, infants who had uh, you know, a shorter um, duration of fever. Uh, notably, they used the higher sort of derivation PCT number of 1.7 rather than the lower 0.5 cutoff. So um, it's, they apparently did some analysis of the lower cutoff, but it was in a supplement that I couldn't access. So I'm uh, unable to comment on that. Um, and although that is a, a drop, it is worth bearing in mind that that's actually not dissimilar to many of the adduction, uh, other prediction tools. So uh, step-by-step has a sensitivity of around 92% as well. And uh, many of the other sort of criterias have similar numbers. So um, that's just a, a little, little bit for everyone to think on. Just from a beginner's point of view, um, I understand that lumbar punctures are stressful for parents and maybe not very pleasant for the kid Um, but if we are really worried about missing that HSV encephalitis or that well-looking kid that does have that serious bacterial infection why wouldn't we do it on every patient I guess just to play devil's advocate like I haven't seen many lumbar punctures so I'm not fully aware of the scheme of complications that do happen but I was just wondering yeah why we are reluctant to just not do it on everyone I guess. I'm also going to play the devil's advocate following that paper where we said that clinical acumen wasn't recorded at all because that's what I would use. If if a baby came in and looked unwell, 
I don't really care what the CRP or the PCT shows me. I will go based on what the child looks like and I will do an LP. So I think for all the validation tools that are out there, that's great, but you should also have at the back of your mind what is a well child and what is an unwell child. So if there is a concern about the way the child looks, then by all means you should go ahead and do a lumbar puncture even if it's not what the clinical tool is telling you to do. I think that's a lot harder if you have a really well-looking child with completely stable markers. I think according to the current policy that we have on there, if the child was under 28 days and that's corrected gestational age, you would go ahead and do everything anyway. So it's only above sort of 28 days to three months, that, that little area that's a grey zone. And the point of creating these clinical tools was to limit the amount of invasive investigations that we were doing. So in that age group, and again, if it was an unwell-looking child, go ahead and do the lumbar puncture. But if it's a well-looking child who's feeding and all your blood markers and everything else comes back normal, then I probably wouldn't rush to do it. And I wouldn't necessarily, in those cases, you wouldn't rush to treat, but you might still want to keep that child in hospital for observation. So like we said, or like Johan said, always safety net and make the safest plan for that patient. So if you have that niggling thought at the back of your head, I think it's really important to communicate that with the admitting team. These, the, the point of all of these rules, I think, is to, to avoid doing the LP that you don't want to do. You never use this rule to not do an LP when you want to do an LP. So if, you, if there's something telling you to do an LP, I think the take home from this paper and from really all of the evidence is do it. And similarly, this paper is unique in including the sub-28-day cohort in uh, potentially being able to avoid uh, lumbar puncture. Every single other piece of research out there in the neonatal period will do a routine lumbar puncture. I think that, and the authors have highlighted this, um, that you really need to apply the findings with a grain of salt in, the, in that very young period. And certainly when you look at the sort of poorer result in the subsequent validation study, you'd really, you'd have to be, you'd have to have a very strong reason not to do a lumbar puncture in, in the particularly vulnerable cases. Another way to think about your question is in the well child, how do you convince the parent to say you want to do a lumbar puncture when they look so well? And then the interesting thing is you start seeing all this um, biases from the, from the family. They, they say, oh, it's just that one temperature at home or was it me wrapping them too much? Or they look really well, do they really need to do it? So it then comes a bit of a struggle. You're like uh, almost like a negotiator there again. That's where you play your role as the patient's advocate. The discussion is never easy, all right? especially in the, the unwell one is probably easy as much as everyone will be quite upset looking at their child being really unwell, but they usually will accept what you, they literally will say, just do what you have to. The well one literally is, can you do less, right? So I think it's about, um, the next part as well is, is about that, that commitment bias that we will have after that. So once you make the decision, you're gonna push really hard to do the procedure. So let's say you try twice to do a lumbar puncture on this neonate, okay? And then mom's already there, you get a bloody tap. The second time you get a dry tap, all right? No one's happy, you're sweaty, okay? And then how much do I want to continue and do this lumbar puncture, right? Now, for those who don't know, why, why the lumbar puncture can be quite important, especially for the, the ones that you're not sure but you're giving some antibiotics is the lumbar puncture can actually tell you if they've got meningitis, it's going to give them six weeks or more of antibiotics sometimes as opposed to two days and see you later. Okay, so it's actually really, really important. So you really, you're going to make the decision is a big one. 
what usually happens um, in ED is one, to be fair, it's a, also a rationalization of resources. It's quite appropriately tedious. It's time that well, there's well spent, but it's tedious to actually talk to the parent and spend, you're gonna spend at least 15 minutes talking about lumbar puncture. You haven't even got consent yet after that 15 minutes. Usually you give them a handout, think about it, but guess what, in the, in the, in the septic kit, you actually have to go to do it within the first hour. All right, trying to achieve that everything in the first hour, giving a cannula, getting the urine, getting a swab, getting a lumbar puncture, getting the antibiotics in one hour is really challenging, even at where, where I work in a, in a tertiary uh, pediatric center. All right, so that's gold standard. And then like going back to the commitment bias, so you miss that, that lumbar puncture, what that usually entails is the next day when you hand over to the general pediatrics is they're gonna do the lumbar puncture on the ward. So it means that it's not over yet. All right, they would probably have at least another two goals before they call it a day at least. All right, so it, it, the, the dominoes will fall when you make the decision. Agree that you probably have to do more when you're not sure about what's going on, but it entails a lot of resource use and then to what end, to what benefit from the child. You've got to think about that as well. It's really, really challenging. I think um, just for a bit of perspective, understanding the reason why clinical prediction tools exist is also really important. So essentially what they are for this particular tool aside because of the complexities with the population that it studies. Essentially, the classic example is pediatric head injury and how the clinical prediction tools are inferior to experienced clinician gestalt. Essentially, what the way that these tools are developed is it's a multivariate analysis of a large population base of patients and they're attempting to find out where are the spikes the patients who had positive outcomes or negative outcomes, however you want to look at it, what were the clinical features when you look back retrospectively that were present in those patients? Now, in the vast majority of cases for senior clinicians and experienced clinicians, those are things that are happening anyway. And so that's why um, if you think the kid needs an LP, you, you do an LP. You don't listen to what the score tells you um, because your clinical gestalt has value in, in the context of these clinical prediction tools. So when the decision is uncertain, um, or it's not clear, or the validation tool is not helping you, regardless of what patient you're treating, often the safest and the best thing for the patient is to seek consensus opinion. So that often means admitting them under a general paediatric service for a second opinion from a paediatrician, observing them for a period of time in the ED. This is coming from the perspective of a non-peds clinician. If I didn't know, and I wasn't sure, I would be asking for help and asking for a second opinion, asking for prospective observation of the child, asking for rapid access follow-up and safety netting in an appropriate manner using those resources which are available to me and also acknowledging that the decision is not straightforward and often it's a consensus opinion, right? You know, if you don't want to do the LP or you don't think the LP is necessary, then having a paediatrician come and review the patient and agree with you or a PEM physician review the patient and agree with you and say, look, I think between the three of us, with the evidence that's available to us and our, our examination of the patient, this is what we're going to do moving forward. That's the safest way to practice it from, from a bedside perspective because I agree some of this information can be really hard to translate. I think I just going to add one more point. So don't forget all these prediction scores or, or tools are going to be overly sensitive because it's all about saving that one death. The problem that entails is that you end up doing more tests than you really, really, really need to. All right, but it's all to save that one death. Thank you so much. Johan, this was a really interesting paper and I'm so glad that you chose it. Um, can you just give us three take-home points um, to think about and then we'll move on? First one is remember that they are the most at-risk population, so do more rather than less. 
The second point would be safety net. No matter what you do, no matter what investigations tell you, always have a safety net. Make sure your patient's safe, even if everything comes back negative and they fall within all your clinical rules as being a patient who's safe, still safety net. And I'd say for the third part, learn more pediatrics. Thank you so much. So this month, we're lucky to have two interlude segments from our two wonderful staff specialists. First up, we've got Serbi, who's going to be talking about the C word. I think it's about time we revisited the C word. We use it all the time, but as doctors, do we do it well? In my opinion, it is still the most common area in which we let our patients and their families down. With age and experience, I've come to realise it really is the most important part of our work. I'm talking about communication, and I'll begin by stating that I am not an expert at this. It's still very much of a work in progress for me. Communication is defined as the imparting or exchanging of information. Effective communication, however, is a lot more than this. It involves understanding the emotion and intentions behind the information or message, and it also means that in order to convey a message, um, you have to engage in active listening to understand the other person's point of view. It sounds so simple, yet frequently we find it going astray, resulting in misunderstandings, frustrations, conflicts, and complaints. So we find that actually there's a lot more to it. It requires learning some important skills and a whole lot of practice. I've had countless failures in communicating effectively over the years, and I'm going to share with you my most recent one. I was at a peripheral hospital about a month ago on a weekend shift in the evening with kids coming out of my ears. My category two popped up on the screen and I left behind the kids that had been waiting three hours to make a bed in which to examine this seven-year-old boy with testicular pain. It was quickly apparent that this was likely to be a torsion. Within 20 minutes of their arrival, the urology registrar had come down to examine the boy and agreed with my diagnosis. He returned from speaking with the parents, saying that the family was refusing surgery and wished to get an ultrasound. I went to speak with them and my approach was poor. I was a little wired from the evening and worried about this boy. I went in too hot. I didn't take the time to sit down and speak to the child. I looked at mum and dad and said, I strongly encourage them to reconsider their decision about surgery because ultrasound at this time would be difficult to arrange and would result in a delay which might have a bad outcome for the child. The child stared at me and then burst into tears as I said the word operation. Mum was visibly unimpressed with me and it's safe to say her defences were up and there was little I could do to back down from there. The end result, she asked for five minutes to speak with her husband and then left without signing a discharge against medical advice form. I rang her 10 minutes later to apologise for my approach. She was still very angry and hung up. I then sent her a message apologising again, explaining that my intentions were good and focused on her child and that if she could please seek an urgent second opinion at a children's hospital, I would call ahead to make sure they were expecting him. I also sent her the details for making a formal complaint. She told me she was on her way to the children's hospital emergency and thanked me. I have reflected a lot on this scenario over the past weeks and there is a lot that I would change. So here are the key points that I'm going to share with you. Always begin with the assumption that the parent wants the best possible care and outcome for their child. Understand that you have medical expertise but they have the expertise specific to their child. When you are faced with a parent who refuses medical care, especially on a night where you've been busting your bum, 
My first advice is simple but hard to do. Take a step back. It is so easy to get emotional and defensive. So instead of doing those things, be curious and ask, what else could this mean? If you feel like you need a breather before you launch into this conversation, then do it. Take a moment to get a drink of water, get those jitters under control so when you reapproach the parent, you have a bit of reserve. Take time for this conversation, pull up a chair, make eye contact if it's culturally appropriate, and make sure that the parent has the people that they need nearby. Offer to get them a drink of water. It's surprising how well this can break the ice. It's useful to begin by asking the parent what is worrying them most and have they had a bad experience in the past. It isn't a question that we ask all that often. If they are unsure about the procedure or have misinformation, ask them if they would like you to explain again in detail and here use written information and draw pictures if you have to. Validate and acknowledge the concerns of the parents. Try not to use the word but. It's hard, trust me. Explain that you are also worried about the child and show genuine empathy and concern. Explain what the worst possible outcome might be. Try to be flexible while also, also keeping patient safety as your priority. Sometimes in order to get what you want, you will have to give a little. So make allowances for this. Obviously, if child safety is at risk, you'll need to consult someone more senior. Please remember that sometimes you will just not make any headway and you might do absolutely everything right. So don't be discouraged and please don't take it personally. I'm going to finish off with one final point and this one is really important. None of the above means that you should put up with aggressive or abusive behaviour. My advice in that case would be to use a different C word. I don't know what you're thinking of, but I was just going to say contact security. I hope you all take something away from this. So Serbi's interlude actually leads us beautifully into the next paper, which is Amal talking about testicular torsion. So his paper is Validation of the Testicular Workup for Ischemia and Suspected Torsion, or the TWIST score, in Diagnosis of Testicular Torsion in Children with Acute Scrotum, by Dr. Pan, published in Indian Pediatrics in October 2020. Hey guys, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So... We shall begin with the TWIST score. Before I begin, I just want to let you know what the score entails, and then we'll go through the actual paper. So it's a score from zero to seven. Testicular swelling is worth two points. A hard testicle is worth two points. Absent chromasteric reflex is worth one point. Nausea or vomiting is one point. And a high-riding testicle is worth one point. So in total, you have anywhere from zero to seven. And the basis of this paper was to validate specificity and sensitivity and validation in the pediatric population. So the population in this paper was males aged 0 to 18 who attended this tertiary referral ED in India with testicular pain or swelling. The exclusion criteria were anyone with trauma, pain that had been longer than one week, a history of testicular disease or prior testicular surgery, or a diagnosis of testicular torsion had either been uh, diagnosed from another referral center or had been excluded. They categorized the, the score as low risk, so zero to two, intermediate risk is three and four, and high risk is five and seven. They defined testicular loss as a surgical orchitectomy or atrophy of the testicle um, on ultrasound at six months follow-up. And the definition from Doppler or ultrasound was a more than 50% difference in volume compared to the contralateral testicle or the absence of blood flow. 
So in total, they had 96 males who they entered into the study with a mean age of 10 years. In the torsion group, so they're divided into the torsion and non-torsion group, there were 68 people who had oh, boys who had torsion and 46% of them were salvaged. So the rest, unfortunately, had a loss of the testicle. Within the torsion group, the mean twist score was 5.7. And when you uh, split it into the risks uh, levels, so low risk, there were zero patients. Intermediate risk had 13 patients. And in the high risk, had 55. In the non-torsion group, the mean score was 1.46. And in the low risk, 21 intermediate risk seven, and zero in the high risk. The other thing I just want to talk about is what they also did in the results was they split up all the torsion and non-torsion based on the symptoms, so the individual aspects of the twist score, so the swelling, testicle hardness, cryosteric reflex, etc. And of the non-torsion, the two that had zero patients was the high riding testes and absent cremesteric reflex. So they kind of said they were probably one of the more specific criteria. So that paper was based on original paper done in 2013 called Development and Initial Validation of a Scoring System to Diagnose Testicular Torsion in Children by Barbosa et al. Thank you so much, Amal. Now, just to start things off, I was interested to see what uh, you thought about the methodology of this paper because certainly reading through it there were a few points where I had eyebrows slightly raised. So from my perspective well this could be a strength and a weakness was the clinical examination and the surgery was performed by the same surgeon so you don't get any bias in any you know um, sense of what is a high riding testicle because if you ask different people to clinically assess, some will say, oh, it's actually high writing, it's not, etc. So there is that loss of bias. But in the same token, because it's done by the same person, you don't get that variety and you don't get different opinions. The ultrasound similarly was also done by one sonographer, so which is both good and bad. One of the weaknesses was they only could uh, get 96 patients. So the sample size is small, which may affect some of the data. And I guess... The other thing in terms of strength was mainly in the results was they did get high specificity and sensitivity for the different groups in terms of the high risk versus low risk. Yeah, thank you. It was interesting. I had a bit of a think about you know whether it was a positive or a negative in terms of the single operator. And, and to be clear, every single patient in this paper was assessed and operated on by one practitioner and had one sonographer doing the ultrasound. Um, I guess the concern is that there would be a high risk of that sort of an observer bias and there was no intra-observer variability that could correct for that. It would be very easy for this surgeon to find the, you know, find cases that are extremely likely to be a torsion and then subsequently validate them and dismiss things that were possibly a little bit more equivocal. Other interesting thing was that 70% of the cases um, that were enrolled into this paper ended up having a positive torsion. Now, I can guarantee you that of the acute testicular pains that I see, there is nowhere near that number that end up having confirmed torsion. So I, I think it's almost certain that there was some degree of prior assessment and exclusion that has been done prior to this paper being published. So one of the things was this was a tertiary referral centre. So I, they didn't comment on whether the patients that were enrolled in the study 
were direct presentations to this ED or whether they were referred from a rural or from other EDs? Because if they were referred, then the reason that they were probably referred is because whoever the first clinician who saw them had some level of suspicion that, hey, this could be a torsion, which would obviously bump up your numbers of positive torsion cases. It was something that was a little bit sparse in this paper. There was The description of methodology was quite limited. Um, there was no way of knowing whether it was a convenience sample, a consecutive sample, how the samples were found, because there was simply no description. So that was probably a, a useful take-home point for our listeners, is that probably the most important part of any paper with critical appraisal is the methodology section. If you don't know how patients have been enrolled, then you can't know how valid the, the results are. Having said that, this is a high-prevalence case population, and it was quite useful to know that um, even in such a high prevalence population, the negative predictive value remained quite good. As we all work in ED, I guess my, when I read this was, is this a, a score that we can use as non-surgical doctors? And I guess that was the part that I was like, ideally we need a score that we can use without needing to wait for a surgeon to come down and make the score. I don't know what you all thought about that. I had a quick look of a couple of other papers. Um, there are a few other papers of this score being validated in the adult population. There was about two or three, and with the original paper being validated in the pediatric population. In respect to whether we use it in ED, I personally have never used it, and I don't know anyone that I've worked with who, you know, seen a acute uh, testicle and said, oh, their twist score is X. So it is definitely something that I've never used and haven't really seen. And I don't know from a urological perspective whether they use it, because even looking at their documentation, they've never documented this twist score. They either say, it's probably a torsion, let's take them up to theatres, or eh, low risk, let's get the ultrasound. I actually looked at the twist score papers following the original one a couple of years ago when I was an ED fellow, and the surgeon's weren't using the twist score. So I guess the, the point is, is this score something that would be able to be used in our population? And if so, how accurate that would be? Because the, the clinicians that would be initially examining these kids can range from a resident to a consultant. And how, I'd say most of the things you could probably get away with, I would just say something like a high riding test. This is not something that everyone would feel comfortable commenting on um, and these things would, would impact on your score. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, it's definitely something that I wouldn't be comfortable, you know, assessing a test and go, oh, their twist score is zero, send them home. Um, especially in a paediatric population where the mortality, uh, sorry, the morbidity of missing a testicular torsion is very, very high. I would still categorize them as low risk, high risk, intermediate, but I would still get either the general surgeon or the urology registrar slash consultant opinion before sending this patient home. So for me, the yield in ED is more an internal one where I can categorize. I think this patient's going to be low risk, but I am still going to contact the relevant uh, surgical uh, registrar and get their opinion, whether that might be an urgent transfer to OT or a ultrasound and kind of go from there so that's kind of my take home or my practice using this score it's not something i would really use however don't forget your ultrasound is actually not the the definitive way of finding out whether you've got torsion or not so i think even in the original um um, paper in 2000, published in 2012 by barbosa they were also quoting the ultrasound sensitivity was about 91 percent is it 
reasonable to ne- means nine percent of torsion. Well, maybe not. So I think the way I I I think about it is um, interestingly, you probably re- feel that you maybe you've made made it in medicine when you, what you do clinically is actually what's on the scoring system. All right, so it gives you a bit of a, a reassurance there. But then the next thing is how do you approach when you are uncertain, meaning the intermediate group. So I think the way I interpret the original paper and this de- uh, this verification paper is that it seems like when the score is really low, it looks like it's really useful because do, you don't actually miss any of the torsions. And the way I approach it is probably ask the, the questions and examine them appropriately for all these risk factors or, or findings that are positive. And then if it's actually in an intermediate one, probably have a low threshold to actually get the surgical team involved as well. If you're not sure, we'll always refer early and, and, and so on. Well, they, they usually will come down very, very quickly anyway because they know how, how time critical it is. They obviously get slightly annoyed when you refer something that doesn't need to, to be referred. And hopefully actually having this low, low as in the score system to actually looking at, um, to pick up the low scoring patients, maybe you can actually avoid the unnecessary referrals as well. And, and as always, if you're a junior staff, if you're not sure, just, just ask the senior and then we'll have a look together and then we'll make a decision together anyway. I mean, uh, methodology aside, uh, just looking through the score, I'd be hard-pressed to see how actually quite a few of the patients I've seen who I guess could be categorised as a low risk have actually ended up being uh, confirmed you know, either by ultrasound or on table. Because you've got things like an absent chromastric reflex for one point and high riding testicle for one point. And I'd say that either one of those really push me towards this is the diagnosis of testicular torsion. And as someone who's done surgery in the past, either one of those findings is enough for me to go, this is high risk rather than, you know, um, I guess uh, putting it in a scoring table. No, I, I 100% agree with you. And there are some features in there that I agree with you. Would I would go as high risk, even if that's the only clinical thing I can find. And that is why for the general practice, while this score is out there, it's useful, I still wouldn't hang my hat and send someone home based purely on a low risk. I still would, especially in the pediatric population, um, get a uro- urology or general surgical consult because no matter how good or bad a score is, missing a torsion, and as we were talking about in the earlier paper, it's all about that one. Even if you miss one torsion, there's a significant uh, morbidity to that patient associated with that, which lasts them their whole life. So it is something that you don't take lightly. And even if I have a patient with like, you know, zero out of seven who's coming with testicular pain, I would still discuss with a senior or a general, like whoever your referral pathway in wherever hospital you work before I simply, um, you know, send them home. So this is something that I think I would use just to say, look, I think it's low risk, but I am still going to escalate appropriately. Um, So it hadn't, it hasn't, it probably won't do much in terms of changing my practice about how I look at or treat or examine um, testicular uh, pains uh, in pediatric population. But the thing that I did like was it did highlight critical signs that we should be looking for. Chromasteric reflex, high riding testicle. Um, you know, and then one thing that they didn't have in there was uh, the lie, which is something that we do normally when we examine, look, is it a normal lie or an abnormal lie? But that wasn't part of the score. So again, that's another thing that you know I haven't had a chance to look through the actual original paper properly to see why these signs were picked and why something like the lie was missed. So while this is an interesting paper, I still wouldn't change my practice or do anything 
different than I have been doing based purely on this paper. So I think it's worth just a quick comment on the sort of surrounding evidence for this twist score. I felt a lot better because as when Omar brought this up, I'd never heard of it either. And I felt a lot better because, you know, the MRAP gods um, in January actually covered another paper relating to this issue. Um, And I was very reassured to find that they hadn't heard of this either. Having said that, um, they astutely commented on the fact that since the original study, there's actually been more than four or five um, subsequent validation studies that have actually suggested that it performs quite well. The consistent messages, and unfortunately the cutoffs have been a little bit variable, but the consistent messages is that if someone scores uh, greater than sort of five or six twist score, seven being the maximum, the likelihood of testicular torsion is very high. It's a very specific rule. Certainly it would lend weight to uh, pushing back against any um, any attempt by urology to say, oh, why don't you just get an ultrasound on that patient? Because those patients should be going to theatre immediately. In terms of the low-risk population, it actually also consistently performed quite well. Again, there was variable cutoffs. With cutoffs of uh, two being low-risk, there was a couple of papers that had one or two cases of missed torsion, and thus particularly in patients who had shorter duration of symptoms. But zero and one in low-risk consistently performed very well and in many papers had sensitivity of 100%. The authors of this study and of the original study say that you could use this paper to essentially avoid the use of ultrasound in both low and high risk populations. What I would suggest is that you could certainly avoid the ultrasound in the high risk patients, but I would still definitely be getting an ultrasound in the low risk patients in this group. And then perhaps a low-risk twist score plus a negative ultrasound would give you sufficient sensitivity to then exclude the patient. Many, uh, at least a couple of the validation studies have been actually done in the emergency department by emergency practitioners rather than urologists. And so that was quite reassuring to me that actually this is something that we could potentially use. Having said that, numbers in every single one of the papers were relatively small. The highest was about 300 odd. So um, I think that we probably need a large study to be performed in this regard. But there is a reasonable body of evidence there for this. I think, Pramod, you were going to comment a little bit on the individual exam findings. Just my perspective, I didn't really find the score very useful at all. When it's obvious, it's obvious. You look at a kid and you see the testicle and you're like, oh, yeah, it's pretty obvious. I think culture towards the approach of, to acute testicular pain has changed dramatically, particularly from the urological services. And they're much more open now, at least in my experience, to taking patients up to theatres and exploring them empirically based off clinical findings alone. I've had about three or four this year that have just gone up to theatres directly with no real issues from that perspective. If my clinical examination is negative and my gestalt tells me no, well, then that's a negative twist score anyway, and that I was doing that anyway. And then the intermediate, well, you also have to remember that you're not practising in a silo. You're practising in an area health service which has its own policies and procedures. And I think nearly every single one that I've worked in mandates urgent surgical referral and review for all these patients anyway. And so I didn't really think that it added much from that perspective. I think it's a great teaching tool. Only when I'm teaching medical students about the evaluation of testicular pain, particularly in pediatric populations, I can rely on this as a way of maybe guiding their education, but certainly not for me clinically. I would agree with you 100%. And that's actually what I was going to chime in and say, that after having spoken to the surgeons that were working at Sydney Kids when I was looking at this score, basically what came back was, well, I think if you think that it's torted or you're not quite sure that it's torted but you know it's not normal then really instead of wasting time getting ultrasounds or even thinking about them you should just be referring to surgery 
in fact, the only other study that I looked at besides this twist score was the use of triage making early referrals to surgery as being your, because it was all time dependent, was to reduce your time from point of arrival to point of surgical review to then being taken to theatre. And I agree with you. I think more and more I see that urology and, and, and gen surge want to take these kids to theatre to explore and make that discovery then um, wait around for an ultrasound scan. So uh, I, I share as in your opinion as well as promotes as well. So I think the one of the main aims of this paper was to see whether you can use something to reduce using the ultrasound, which may not apply very much to us because we don't use ultrasound very much these days for this problem because of the low threshold to actually get into the theater. Then comes to the very interesting comment from Prima about the Gestalt. So that's where the more experience you, you have, obviously that Gestalt gets much more and more sharper. But I guess maybe like you very correctly described, it's useful for the people who are beginning their journey in thinking about how to process all this information, having a list to start with, and then actually after that, realizing and incorporating that into their own Gestalt. After that, so I think that's that's part of the learning process as well. So my thoughts are, it's useful to know if you're looking at multiple risk factors and or examination findings that are not there, and you get they give you a nice list. Although it's not exhaustive in any way. Like the other thing we didn't talk about is like the blue, blue dot sign, which is a, a good predictor of actually it being actually safe uh, with a appendiceal torsion instead. Um, and then actually learning how to actually assess the testes properly for, from using the score if you don't if you're not an expert yet. Yeah, I think that's yeah. Um, I'm glad that I, I fall into the consensus with two pediatric experts. It makes me feel a bit better. I just had two other comments I wanted to make. One on what Shreyas mentioned about if the patient is low risk uh, on a twist score, so it's a twist score of zero, doing an ultrasound in that population logically makes sense. But you have to remember, statistically speaking, if you do if your pretest probability is low, and then you perform an investigation. Uh, so the classic example is your well score is zero and then you do a D-dimer, you're going to end up with a lot of false positives. And false positives in this particular clinical question is going to lead to a lot of unnecessary interventions. So you need to, and these are not low morbidity interventions. This is like an orchidoplexy, which is, you know, a complex operation with its own risks. Uh, and so you're going to complicate things even more. So logically, it makes sense. Like, you know, a negative ultrasound plus a low twist score can be reassuring. But what are you going to do if the twist score is zero, the patient's pain-free, but then the ultrasound shows compromised testicular flow? What does that mean in a patient who's uh, fine and everyone wants to go home? And then you're sort of stuck with this very awkward question. So you just need to be a little bit careful and be aware that you are going to be dancing in that zone where you are going to get false positive results, particularly when the prevalence is low and your pre-test probability is low. That's just the stats and you can't escape that. The other thing that I wanted to just very briefly touch on is the sensitivity and specificity of some of these clinical findings. So cremasteric reflex, studies have shown they're about 90% sensitive and specific, but it's important to remember that over 50% of boys over the age of 30 months have an absent reflex bilaterally. Also, the technique of eliciting a cremasteric reflex is not as straightforward as people are often taught. There's pinching the thigh, there's stroking the thigh, there's lots of different ways, each of which lends itself to different clinical situations. So it's not as simple as eliciting a reflex. Transverse lie, uh, which is not in the score, reported sensitivity about 83%, specificity of about 94%, and pretty high negative predictive value. And once again, this high lie thing is only 30, 33 to 55%. 
uh, present in torsion cases. So I don't really know how to interpret that in the context of this score either. In addition to that, you've got the Prenn sign, which is the elevation of, of the testicle to eliminate, to, to see if that relieves pain, and that might be suggestive of an epidemiocolitis or an inflammatory process rather than an acute torting process. Other important thing to remember is when you're thinking about how these patients clinically present, it's testicular pain, but then they also, the triad that is often quoted is nausea and vomiting as well. Um, and often and often that gets missed, but nausea and vomiting has really high positive predictive values in the context of testicular pain. So also worthwhile remembering. Uh, once again, not necessarily covered very well in the score. And then also remember the mimics are super common. So just, just to throw it out there so everyone's aware, like abdominal pain and and things referred pain is very common in young boys, particularly when they're too shy to tell a stranger that their testicle hurts. Um, so it's a part of every routine abdominal examination for me now. Yeah, I think I think that's a really useful comment and really worth sort of thinking about broadly in terms of testicular torsion as an entity. We have a whole lot of clinical assessment tools like exam tools, ultrasound, etc., which are all quite specific but not very sensitive. And unfortunately, we have to do a mishmash of all of those uh, different specific tools to try and obtain a reasonable sensitivity. Just on your comment uh, regarding the ultrasound promoter, I, I was interested in this because you know there's been lots of um, comments about how ultrasound performs in torsion. So I had a very brief look and Interestingly, there doesn't seem to be very much recent research um, into into how well ultrasound performs. The most recent paper that I could see in my very brief search was 2012. Um, so it'd be worth seeing the effect of the you know technology has had in improving that sensitivity. Having said that, um, ultrasound seems to be a very specific um, tool. So uh, in the vast majority of cases, if the ultrasound is positive that tends to mean that there, there is a testicular torsion. And certainly in the papers that I found where there was a low-risk patient that ended up having a testicular torsion that was often picked up because they had the ultrasound, the ultrasound maybe showed some flow, maybe was kind of equivocal, but wasn't entirely normal. And so they proceeded to surgical exploration and uh, ended up finding a torsion. So that actually um, probably uh, sort of lends some sort of utility to the ultrasound in those lower risk populations where I'm sort of picking up on the cases that would otherwise have been missed. I'm interested to sort of get people's opinions. It, it, it does sometimes feel like, uh, you know, as with the appendicitis scores or with the PE scores, it's a little bit intuitive. Um, people with more clinical signs of testicular torsion tend to have testicular torsion and people who don't, don't. And, and that's probably a fairly simple thing. Having said that, I'm interested to see if you guys think um, that this might be something that would eventually be used, certainly in terms of low-risk group, by emergency practitioners without involving urology. When your clinical gestalt matches what the score is telling you, that the score is zero, I don't think there's a torsion, I can get an ultrasound, prove it, and then just let them go home. And particularly in uh, in smaller centres, you know, maybe in a rural area or maybe in, in a remote place where access to surgeons is not very easy. I think you'd have to do a pretty large-scale study in which you validate this score and have a decent amount of inter-observer bias, but um, also it'd be good to see this being used by ED physicians and by surgeons. Because then only then would you be able to comfortably say, yes, I thought this was low and the surgeons agreed with me every time, that low risk group. So I think my thoughts are, one of the unique interesting points about this score is most scores try to rule in disease or rule out disease. This one's trying to do both. And that's why the difficulty is actually the middle part, the, the uncertainty of the, the middle group. So my thoughts are the utility for something of high consequence is always as in of picking up something of high consequence is always trying to find something to rule out disease. My thoughts 
is probably actually maybe even further improving the score of actually having more points as always to improve the sensitivity to try to rule out disease. And I think that would be where the utility is, especially in an area like this where we say, hey, there's a hint of maybe a torsion happening, the surgeons get involved. So if you can safely say, I don't think actually there's any risk factors after looking at all these multiple, multiple um, examination findings I'm looking for, maybe it's actually useful that way. Amazing. Amal, I think we, we might wrap up. Um, do you mind just giving us three take-home points to reflect on about this paper? Take-home point one is this score will lend its utility to give you a bit of a reminder as to what you need to examine when you do go ahead and examine a torsion, especially if you're doing it you know, early stages of your career. Um, and if you do label something as high or low risk, um, it will allow you to, um, in your head, try to build that clinical gestalt of, okay, this is high risk, it's probably gonna be torsion, or this is low risk, it's probably not gonna be torsion. But at the same token, we're not in a space to use this rule by itself. We still need to get the input of the urologist or general surgeon. So there's still a long way to go before you can start using this to discharge patients, um, especially in the pediatric population, patients' home. Um, the next take home point is the intermediate group, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And I think in most centers, it's called the surgeon or the urologist. And if there's any concern, just go straight up to theater. Don't mess around with Dopplers, ultrasounds, because at the end of the day, it's a time critical procedure and the viability of the testicle is time-based. So instead of wasting time getting Dopplers and so forth, it's safer to take the child up to theaters. So, and then it's just more uh, watch this space, potentially in the future, as Kef was saying, with more uh, rules, this might be something that make a uh, surge in the next 5, 10, 20 years, or it might just die off. Thank you so much. That was great. Alrighty, next up we've got Kerf doing interlude number two um, and he's going to be talking about well-being. So hi everyone, so I'm Kerf. Uh, as I say, I work both at the Children's Hospital Westmead and Auburn Hospital. Um, so I'm actually also the, the Director of Pre-Vocational Education and Training at Auburn. So therefore I have an interest in doctor well-being and I hope to share some of my thoughts and resources on that. So I think we can all attest to how in emergency medicine we frequently get exposed to stressful and traumatic events, including deaths in ED, especially children, uh, performing or watching CPR, seeing patients with severe injuries, dealing with aggressive patients, and having difficult conversations with patients and their families. There's also the frustration of not being able to do as much as we would like to for our patients in a demanding environment. This probably stems from how busy we all are, including our colleagues in and outside of the hospital caring for our patients. But it would do us well to remember that we are in the business of caring. Don't forget to be kind to yourself and remember to have empathy towards our colleagues and our patients. If you realize that your own empathy for patients is diminishing, it is time to take stock of where you are at. Are you burnt out? We ED doctors are mostly a resilient bunch, but let us not forget that we are only human. And sometimes, we need a bit of help, and it is okay to need or want help. Well-being is a complex combination of physical and mental, emotional, and social factors that are linked to our happiness and life satisfaction. 
This means embracing self-care is essential and it's neither a luxury nor selfish. Self-care looks very different for every one of us. Doing what helps to fill your bucket is critical and here are some strategies that I can recommend. Connecting with supportive family, friends and colleagues. Exercising regularly. Spending time in nature. Eating well. Taking time to rest. Being kind and compassionate to ourselves and others. Feeling gratitude and expressing appreciation. Cultivating positivity. Using healthy coping strategies. Practicing meditation. There are several apps out there that I can recommend to help you actually switch off from work. Specifically for doctors in training in New South Wales, there's actually an app uh, released by the Black Dog Institute called Shift. Uh, it delivers essential mental health and well-being skills for healthcare workers. Other apps for meditation and well-being that I can recommend include Calm, Headspace, Feeling Good, Smiling Mind, and Insight Timer. What's important next is knowing who or where you can turn to when you need help. Approach your supervisor or any senior clinician. Go to your GP. They can provide 20 free sessions with a psychologist through a mental health treatment plan. For junior doctors in New South Wales, there's also the JMO support line, 1300 566 321. There's also a free confidential service for all New South Wales health employees called Access EAP. They offer help for a number of needs from mental health, substance use to workplace conflict or personal issues. There's also an interesting nationwide service called Doctors for Doctors, and you can find them online at www.drs4drs.com.au, where you can find a clinician that's comfortable looking after other doctors. For severe crisis, you can contact Beyond Blue, 1300 224 636, Lifeline, 131 114. Or the suicide callback service, 1-300-659-467. Don't forget that as we advance in our career, every one of you will be in a position to help a colleague. Be approachable and be ready to offer a listening ear. I leave you with a beautiful quote from Hans Christian Andersen from his work entitled The Complete Fairy Tales. He's known for many works including The Empress New Clothes, The Little Mermaid and The Ugly Duckling. Just living isn't enough, said the butterfly. One must have sunshine, freedom, and a little flower. Thank you so much, Kerf. And having recently downloaded the Headspace app, I can certainly attest that Andy Puttycomb's voice is one of the most relaxing things that I've ever listened to. We'll include the links for that Kerf has just mentioned in our show notes so that anyone who thinks that they might benefit from them can access them. Thanks again. So next up, we've got Min, who will be 
talking to us about a paper entitled Salbutamol and Ipratropium by Inhaler is superior to nebulizer in children with severe acute asthma exacerbation randomized clinical trial. It's by Iramain et al. And it's published in Pediatric Pulmonology in January 2019. Thank you for the introduction. So this study involves 103 children uh, between the age of 2 and 14 years who have been categorized to have a severe asthma exacerbations based on pulmonary score that they use in this study of equal or more than seven. Um, it was a single center study um, conducted in an emergency department in Paraguay. So there were two investigators who were involved in defining children, uh, whether they have a severe asthma exacerbations where they state as one ER doctor and one ER nurse. And these children were randomly allocated using a computer random numbers um, and a sealed envelope technique for allocation concealment to either group, that is salbutamol and ipratropium bromide by nebulizer, or salbutamol and ipratropium by metered dose inhaler with belled holding chamber and mask along with oxygen by cannula separately. So in the intervention group for the salbutamol and the ipratropium delivered as a MDI, the children were asked to have eight inhalations for each puff, um, whereby two puffs were delivered at every 10 minutes for two hours and then every 30 minutes for two hours with a separate oxygen nasal um, prongs with a maintenance of FIO to up 35 to 40%. In the comparator group, there was a, a as previously mentioned, salbutamol and ipratropium by nebulizer, where 0.5% of the salbutamol aerosol solutions um, was given in a 5 ml saline solution with a one dose every 20 minutes for two hours and then every 30 minutes for two hours and more. The primary outcomes of this study was measured based on the rate of the hospitalizations um, with the secondary outcome um, defined as being the difference of oxygen saturations between two groups that were measured um, initially at 60 minutes and then followed by again at 90 minutes. So 50 children were enrolled in the MDI as opposed to the 51 children in the nebulized group. From 60 minutes of treatment until the fourth hour, um, children in the MDI group um, had significantly better pulmonary score index than the nebulized group uh, with a significant um, lower rate of hospitalization MDI group of a 5.8% in the MDI as opposed to the 27.5% in the nebulized group with saturation oxygen was also significantly higher from 90 minutes of the treatment until fifth hour in the MDI group as opposed to the nebulized group. Also higher rate of hospitalizations in the nebulized group of a 14 um, as opposed to the three in the MDI group with a, they also in, indicated in their outcomes of a higher adverse outcome of a, which they defined it as a higher heart rate in the nebulized group as opposed to the MDR group from the 30 minutes of the treatments. Just going through this study, I noticed that you know, there were a couple of things that I wanted to point out. I mean, in terms of the strengths wise with this study, it was obviously a, the study design um, as a randomized control decreases the chances for a selection as well as the observer biases. Um, whereby the investigators were blindly enrolled and evaluated all patients without knowledge of which treatment protocol they would receive. Another strength um, I noticed was it was the randomized control in itself um, by nature enables the causations to the result. Um, in this instance, it is that the MDI group causes less side effects, results in reduced number of hospitalizations and improved pulmonary score and oxygen saturation 
compared to the nebulized group. And I thought that findings from this study are quite highly applicable um, in practice, given the current pandemic situation of COVID-19. Weaknesses, I noticed, was that there was a no long-term follow-up. It was unable to know if the two interventions made a real clinical difference in patient outcome. And also the other weakness was that there was an absence of a previous comparator data and its use in data analysis, whereby the risk category of the included patients was not really defined um, based on individual patients' previous severe uh, asthma exacerbations requiring invasive interventions such as NIB or intubation. And also it was a relatively small sample size, about 103 in total. So although the findings from this study sound very applicable in clinical practice, but the applicability in a wider population can be questionable. Thanks for that, Min. It was a very interesting paper, and uh, and I agree, something that is something that we can reflect on in terms of our clinical practice. Um, I'm not going to push you too hard to you know answer too many questions because I understand that your pediatric experience is limited. But uh, the one thing that I did want to ask you is what you think of this pulmonary score because that was probably my major gripe with this paper. Um, do you do you want to talk us through what a pulmonary score is and what you think about its utility? So with the pulmonary score, I personally have never heard of it either and I haven't heard of it being used in clinical practice either during my student days as well as with my very short exposure um, in paediatrics. So I had a quick look as to where they got this pulmonary score from and there was that validation study published in 2002 in the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal with the title of Validation of the Pulmonary Score and Asthma Severity Score for Children, the lead um, author being Smith et al. In this, they defined the pulmonary score out of nine, divided into respiratory rate, wheezing, and accessory muscle use, thanoclodomastoid. For the score of zero, um, in children less than six years, it'll be less than 30 respirates, and in um, six or more, it'll be less than 20. And in the no wheezing and no apparent increase in the accessory muscle use. Um, score of one in a less than six-year-old would be 31 to 45 over respirates. Uh, six years of age would be 21 to 35. Uh, wheezing detected on the terminal expiration with stethoscope and mild increase in the accessory muscle use. Score two would be less than six years would be 46 to 60 and equal or more six years would be 36 to 50 and wheezing detected on the entire expiration with stethoscope and increased accessory muscle use and Score of three, um, given as more than 60 of respirate, more than 50 of respirate um, in respective age groups, and um, wheezing detected on the inspiration and expiration without stethoscope and maximal use of accessory muscle use. Um, I just thought it was interesting that this, the application of this pulmonary score um, into into the, um, as previously mentioned, whereby the two investigators, the ER nurse and the ER doctor, without the mention of their seniority in giving, uh, scoring these children of how valid it is, whether they were giving a correct scores was quite interesting. Yeah, so essentially respirate, work of breathing and wheeze were given equal um, significance and scored by three. Now, I'm um, going around the table and particularly Serbian curve, a patient with a uh, respirate of 65, severe accessory muscle use and no wheeze, um, would you 
classify that as intermediate as this score does or would you classify that as a patient who may drop dead any minute? Um, obviously, I would I would rate that as severe and I think careful too. I think the work of breathing tells you everything, to be fair. Uh, I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I actually had a, I was working on a clinical shift. We had a 15-year-old. Uh, he's 100 kilos, uh, so it's quite adult size as well. But um, you don't even have to look at his muscles. You look at his forehead, he's like sweaty. So the, the work mm. of breathing tells everything. That's, that's my opinion. I found the pulmonary score fairly useless when I looked at it. Um, um, because I would agree with Kerf that the only thing there that I was really interested in was your accessory muscle use. Also, I found that the binary less than six, above six, and then giving you these uh, ranges for respiratory rate weren't really quite appropriate because we know – I would love to know whether they were including uh, under 12 months in this study as well and whether these kids are being – given Ventolin for their bronchiolitis presentations. So there was a few things that in there that I, that I thought was a, a strange way to risk stratify patients. And we have our own version of that. And instead of using a score, we'd just say mild, moderate or severe. So I think also to be fair, um, I have seen quite a few papers out there that has all the different scoring systems for your severity of wheeze. To be fair as well, I think when you're doing research, you, it's quite hard to not quantify something if you're going to study it. So I think this is a way of just trying to quantify something, trying to make it a little bit more objective when clearly it's going to be a lot of inter-observer variability to try to minimize that by using a scoring system and giving some objective cutoffs with a lot of difficulty because stuff on the scoring system is, is still quite subjective. But I guess this minimizes that. Whether it's useful in real life, in my opinion, probably not much. Yeah. So um, it, the age range for the population was 2 to 18. So... Um, the greater than six years population could be a six-year-old or an 18-year-old. I'd love to know um, how this paper sort of translates to your experiences, um, Serbian and Kerf, and particularly in the context of the COVID pandemic. I guess, you know, we, it's been very well established that uh, meter dose inhalers or, or essentially puffers um, are much more effective than nebulizers in, in lower risk or intermediate risk patients. Um, are you using this in your more severe asthma exacerbations? I will be honest, I can't remember the last time I used a nebulizer for a sick child. In fact, not in ED. They're often used by paramedics en route. I was actually a lot more interested in the dosing of, of the salbutamol and atrovent given to these children and, and how, how different that was to what we, we used here. It looks like, I think from the, I can't remember in great detail, but it looks like the total amount in the first hour is similar, even though the way they gave it was a little bit different, I think for the nebulizers. Going back to what Serbi was talking about, when we, we last used nebulizers, literally yesterday was my first time in a while uh, for this really sick child that ended up um, in ICU on uh, non-invasive ventilation for their severe asthma, being on continuous nebulizers for four hours and still pretty much looks the same, okay, or, or a little bit better. Um, there's actually, I was interested, I was looking at the evidence as well. There's actually something maybe a little bit more applicable to our population. There's actually a study done quite a while back. It's like a long while now. I think it's back in about 2000 or so where it was actually start, done in Starship uh, Children's Hospital in Auckland. So they're actually also looking at similar group of the severe um, asthma group, um, similar to this paper mm -hmm. as well. And pretty much... That paper um, showed also that despite a small population of only 60 children, they actually could prove that it's again more effective than nebulizers in general, even for the severe um, population as well, greater reduction in wheezing, reduced admissions. Actually, 
um, showed an 80% decrease in uh, hospitalization, which is quite dramatic. Again, um, as Min also eluded from this paper as well, similar findings of uh, decreased rates of um, side effects like tremors and hyperactivity. I think what was interesting about the Starship paper was actually they talked about money as well. So you actually easily save 400 New Zealand dollars per patient if you don't use nebulizer um, and use an MDI instead. I think the other um, usefulness of, of using MDIs is patient education um, as well. Yeah, definitely. So obviously that's where um, as they start the journey in your ED, maybe they're um, presenting for the first time ever or they are frequent presenters anyway. Um, a lot of them still need a lot of um, education to make sure that they're doing the right thing. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon. We see people um, or patients coming in with um, using their pathos too often. So we always talk about the three-hour mark. Please don't use it more often than that. And um, usually uh, that's actually a predictor of how uh, they're actually poorly controlled usually in the community as well. So if we remember our primary sort of pharmacology, the MDI formulation actually has smaller particle size, hence another reason it goes down further uh, into sort of the terminal bronchioles as opposed to the uh, nebulizers, which are larger particles. But that said, we also think about the logistics of it, uh, particularly in this study where they sort of gave that two puff every 10 minutes. You know, that's going to be another dedicated person in a child who's reasonably unwell, it's another person on top of a small child, uh, reducing the amount of room you have to sort of get another person in to do other stuff. Um, and it's also, uh, for any of those of you who are asthmatics, it's not pleasant having someone jam a, um, you know, a mask with an MDI on your face when you're struggling to breathe sometimes. So sometimes it's actually more comfortable for the child as well. And perhaps, you know, if um, in the, these instances are very sort of, sedate, happy children who were getting nebulized or MDIs or were used to it, that may make a difference. But uh, sometimes the entire, I guess, logistics of applying this sort of protocol where you've got that 10-minutely uh, MDI, they haven't really said whether it's via a mask or a mouthpiece, but um, you know, administering that might be a bit problematic in the entire setting. Uh, which is another reason, I guess, more than anything else, more than anything else, that we uh, tend to use nebulizers. Yeah, it was interesting that you raised that point because that was about to be my question. I mean, I have also haven't used nebulizers much in the last 12 months, probably even before that, I can't remember, especially in the kids' hospital, we barely ever use it. The first thing I realised was how much I rely on experienced and skilled nursing staff in order to do this because you just kind of write it and then walk away. I don't think I've been the person who's ever manually administered an MDI in a recess situation. So my question is, when you have the hypoxically agitated, unhappy child in a crowded, noisy recess room, both of which often go hand in hand, how do you, so the techniques that I've used is, you know, getting parents to be involved, having people, do you have any other techniques that you would use to, because we know that it's so much more effective uh, and will potentially change the clinical course so much more significantly. What do you do? To be honest as well, I find it really challenging. Um, step one, interestingly, part of preparation of this um, podcast, when I'm reading through a few things, uh, I never knew actually that if the child is distressed and crying, the efficacy actually goes down. I used to think, oh, they take a deep breath, they're crying, they're taking uh, everything down to the lungs. It's actually wrong, which is interesting because, to be honest, more than half the time when you give it to the child, they'll be crying, especially for the really young ones. So trying to get them calm, again, you're right, um, to, to try to get the parents involved, get someone they're comfortable with, 
the usual distraction techniques if it's age appropriate for them. I let them watch whatever, like Peppa Pig or whatever that they like. Their, their YouTube video Louis of choice. Tef, Louis. Yeah, Bluey, yes, yes, YouTube video of choice. Um, and then some centers, obviously the tertiary pediatric centers, you have the luxury of having a child life therapist as well. And that's, that's all you got. The very unlikely one that you have to do is give some sedation. Very, very, would you? Um, I would if, it's a, it's a very difficult one because you, step one, if they're not severe or life-threatening, you wouldn't give it, right? But then everyone's, including myself, will be very hesitant to give it in the severely unwell one as well because you want to stop that respiratory drive. Are you going to give some ketamine, right? That would be the classic one. Are you going to give some clonidine, the, the stuff that doesn't really cause any um, severe respiratory depression? Challenging scenario. So going back to the interesting part of your question about the hypoxia, that's actually one of the reasons that I would give a nebulizer because that's you give the oxygen constantly as well. Okay, and the other, the other times where I think the nebulizer will actually help uh, um, if you are struggling to just give that three lots of subutamol in that one hour, right? This actually gives a continuous um, stream over the, the past next one hour as well. The other one is if the child is in respiratory distress, all this passive administration can, can help as well, but actually forcing it on their face may actually be comfortable for them. So I, I, I honestly still struggle at making a decision with preference still of trying to use the usual techniques to, to calm them down, failing which maybe if they're actually getting worse, I'll think about the nebulizer quite early. Mm -hmm. And I think to answer Shreya's question about the specifics in COVID times, again, another challenge. Um, the big one's usually about space, where you're gonna do the nebulizer when you have an undifferentiated COVID status for a patient. The gold standard is a negative pressure room. Uh, we don't expect every ED to have that, especially the further out you go from the tertiary center. Um, and then the next thing is about the usual diligence with your hand hygiene, PPE, um, and, and also making sure that um, the staff are, are trained properly as well with that. So don't forget the usual space, staff, have you got the right equipment for all that as well? The other question that I had was, so I mean, in general, pediatricians are kinder than respiratory physicians in demanding MDIs for severely unwell patients. I, I find that I have this conversation a lot with adult patients as well with the respiratory physicians when I'm admitting them. But the other conversation that I struggle with is the cognitive dissonance that parents sometimes have when they're like, oh, but the, vent, the nebulizer is so much better. It's noisier and you know, more things come out of the mask and therefore it must be a more efficacious treatment. How do you go about explaining that to parents, particularly when you're trying to three-point restrain their 18-month-old and put a put an put a MDI face mask on them to to give them some puffers? So yeah, I I find it again. I agree with you. It's a complete challenge for all the preconceived notions. It's a bit like the classic ones we see again. No stereotypes, but we do see a different population of uh, culturally diverse um, patients that come through Auburn ED. Um, and quite a lot of them, whether you're talk, talking about the usual um, stereotypical um, Chinese um, or uh, foreigners as well, they'll say, oh, I want to drip. Like, then you ask them, oh, why do you want to drip? Oh, it makes me better. And then you realize that's clearly a preconceived notion uh, that they're asking for a specific treatment, which you disagree. So again, it's always about addressing the actual demands or concerns of the parent or patient directly having a discussion about what works and what doesn't work, what I think, what you think, and try to come together to make a consensus. Very rarely you have to um, negotiate and maybe even back down so much just to advocate for the patient to get some treatment. Uh, it's not common. So I, I guess it's, as always, it's a bit of a negotiation there and a bit of um, communication as, as Serbi described very well in, in her interview earlier as well. Is there perhaps scope for a combined approach? Maybe you could 
use a nebulizer for the first dose and then the, the puffer for the second dose. I think you just found your, your PhD there. <laughs> you, you, you can have that question. It's hard to gauge success of treatment when there's an inconsistency in your approach to treating a patient. So I don't know how you would assess salbutamol responsiveness in someone who you've done a little bit of NEBS and a little bit of MDI. I don't know. Where do you go from there? I, personally, I think I would find it really hard to gauge the success of my treatment and therefore appropriately gauge patient's responsiveness, therefore appropriately gauge severity of asthma in some way. I guess the only variation to that obviously is escalation of care or de-escalation of care. That's the only time you use both. And then I guess the really rare circumstance where you're going to throw the kitchen sink at the patient, meaning you're just giving them everything, this is not working, I'm going to try something else different and so on. So the escalation of care again. And sometimes that's all you can do because as, as always with any patient that has a rare, rare um, severity, meaning you do, on top of the usual stock standard, they're highly unwell, where it gets rarer and rarer. Obviously the evidence to guide you gets less and less. Bear in mind, obviously, everything you do has consequences as well. So you've got to weigh all the, the risk benefits as always. And certainly with that, it's worth bearing in mind that this paper, as you know, with the abundance of research, um, categorized severe patients, excluded life-threatening patients. Anytime a patient, you know, you're really concerned that they're an extremist, drowsy, altered, um, or, you know, in really severe distress, you, know, you just do whatever you can to get some Ventolin in. Point of interest, uh, in, the acu in the actual life-threatening asthmas, where you're applying an, an IV mask or intubating, you can actually give an MDI versus a little um, connector, uh, which is interesting that for our most serious patients, and since I'm currently working in ICU, I see this a lot, and I was quite surprised because I thought the only way to give it was via you know, the nebulizer attachment, is that they actually do have an MDI attachment. So that is something that perhaps in emergencies, we don't see this as much, even with the severe ones, we always tend to um, nebulize. We could perhaps think of something like that. I think some, something, just a very small point for those who don't know, um, that there's actually a change in the MDIs here in Western Sydney stock as well. So um, some of the subutamol now actually has a counter. Uh, I don't know whether you guys have seen it. That actually doesn't fit quite a lot of the adapters for the ventilation circuit. So just be really careful that you have actually have some other, the, the usual ones stocked up as well. Amazing. Really good discussion. Min, uh, to wrap up, do you want to give us your three take-home points for the paper? As someone who has relatively limited pediatric experience, just reading of this paper just reminded me of the importance of reassessment of patients once you give treatment and bear it in mind that there may be a variability in the way you approach patients and how you treat them um, to basically meet their individual needs. And application and referral to the local guidelines, because um, based on where you, you, where you work, the population uh, characteristics of the population might be different. Um, so you should always refer to the local guidelines. And also, um, from my perspective, read more <laughs> about pediatrics. Thank you so much. Now, it's time for everyone's favourite segment of the podcast, Kit's Corner.
Thank you, Shreyas. Statistics are fascinating, but as we've learnt, we need to be aware of how we interpret our data. And there's so many factors that can influence a trend, and social discourse itself influences how our data is analysed and what data is and isn't commented on. You can't always infer whether a finding is useful, or for that matter, whether a trend is necessarily going to continue. And this brings me to one of my favourite non-medical statistics. If the rate of Elvis impersonators increases as it did between his death and the year 2000, by now, a third of the world should be Elvis impersonators. And within 25 years from now, the entirety of the world's population are projected to be Elvis impersonators. To use some groan-worthy Elvis references, I'm all shook up by this fact. It highlights the need to have a suspicious mind when it comes to statistics, and it's now or never that we need to have a little less conversation, a little more action in understanding that, and I'm really going to have to practice my Elvis impersonation. I'm dead, Kit. <laughs> That's my favourite. <laughs> We've actually got a new segment this month, the mailbag. So Moda, after four months of hoping, someone has finally emailed us. Thanks, Shreyas. Yes, we were very excited to receive our very first email in our mailbag last month. It was from one of our BPT colleagues here at Westmead Hospital, Dr. Slav Nikolik. Uh, Slav wants to send his warm wishes to the general club team. So thank you so much, Slav. We also received a very thoughtful email from Dr. Nassim Efrani, one of our Westmead EDATs. The response was regarding the last episode on women in medicine. And she also brought up quite an Im- important point for us to kind of discuss on this podcast, and that was that, you know, uh, whilst having a chat about what we see on the floor is important, she did encourage us to make sure that that is consistently backed up with some sort of evidence, um, which is a really important point, and we thank her for bringing that to our attention. I think, obviously, we all want to be able to uh, bring our own experiences to the table, but I think, you know, going forward, we will also make sure that we keep in mind how how that reflects in the literature as well. And to that point, um, so in our last episode, for those who perhaps haven't listened to that one, we did talk about females having more atypical presentations of chest pain um, and did kind of mention that we hadn't really seen any STEMI presentations in females that appeared to be that typical grey, ashen, severe, central, heavy chest pain kind of presentation. And she mentioned that she had actually seen some presentations like that in the female population. So that kind of prompted us to look further into the research to see what else we could find in terms of the way females typically present with STEMI. So we found one systematic review, which is titled Sex Differences in Symptom Presentation in Acute Coronary Syndromes. And this systematic review did compare men and women with ACS and did find that females had higher odds of presenting with pain between the shoulder blades, nausea or vomiting and shortness of breath rather than chest pain. But they did also mention that both sexes most often presented with chest pain. So whilst females are more likely to present atypically, it's also very important for us to keep in mind, as Nassim um, mentions in her response, that you know we do still see females that come in with STEMIs with our typical symptoms, so we also need to keep that in mind. 
And one other interesting observational paper called Gender Differences in Symptom Presentation of ST Elevation Myocardial Infarction, so one that actually looked specifically at STEMI, also did suggest that female gender was the strongest independent predictor of non-chest pain presentation, but again also addressed the importance to remember that they still can present typically. So thank you, Nassim, for your email. It's really exciting to be able to actually engage in a conversation outside of just the journal club team and kind of go looking for further information and we'll definitely um, post those articles in our show notes for anyone else who's interested to read into it further as well. Thanks for having a further look in and you know just goes to encourage anyone who wants to get in touch with us please continue to do so with your comments and feedback. We're really keen to you know address any queries that you might have and, and always happy to have a further look into the literature to see if we can answer your questions. Okay, and with that, I think it's time to wrap up. We've learned so much today. Turns out we may be able to risk stratify febrile neonates without LP, although I don't think we're there yet. A twist score is useful for testicular torsion, and MDIs are better than nebulizers even in severe asthma. Massive thank you to all of our guest speakers, Johan, Omar, Min, and also our guest uh, staff specialists, Serbi and Kerf. And also, uh, just to add to that, I really want to say a massive thank you to our team. Every one of you guys has brought such incredible enthusiasm, skill, perspective, and I can certainly attest insane hard work um, into making this happen every month. And I'm so proud of all of you and, and, and all of us for having gone as far as we have in a relatively short space of time. As always, uh, all of the links to today's papers will be in the show notes, um, and we really want to hear from you. Um, please, any uh, comments, questions, feedback, please email us. We're on westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. We're now officially open access on the Hedy website, and so anyone who is listening to this who is keen to contribute, please feel free to contact us and we can organise for you to come on as a guest. Thank you so much for listening and we look forward to being in your ears again next month when we'll be learning the ins and outs of pre-hospital medicine. Mm-hmm.